Okay, you guys. Uh, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're here. We're gonna. We're gonna start. I'll tell you a story that happened yesterday. Uh, so we were getting ready to read the Torah, and um, we needed. You know, the the first. Uh, the first blessing is said by the Kohen and uh, the uh, our Gabai, you know, the person organizing who's coming up to say the various blessings, looks around the show for a Kohen and there was, just as he's, I'm watching him, just as he's turning his head to, to scan the room, like not every congregation has a Kohen, so, so sometimes you just have to skip that. Um, the door opens and someone walks in literally at that moment and, and he says, are you a Kohen? And he says, yes. So literally at that moment, and the and what the portion that we're reading, Achremos, is all about the Kahanim going into the Holy of Holies. And at that moment, I was looking at the the uh, the the Chumash, the the and and my eye was on the word Kohen. So it was sort of like everything came together in like this 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 moment. And I'm reminded of what Rabbi Wolfson said that that God takes uh, the Torah, the portion of the week and takes the letters from it, and from the letters, weaves together that reality. So here it was like the Kohen walking in as we're about to read about the Kahanim at the moment, and everything lined up. So the, the truth is, I'm telling you this story because of more because of this next story. So it's the next story. The next story is that um, is uh, a few moments later, uh, Yehuda Solomon uh, our chazan comes up to me and says, I just had another one of these moments. I said, what was it? He says, he says someone walked in, and it, it was an older person, and there's a, a mitzvah, uh, a verse in the Torah that says that you have to rise up for someone elderly, right? So he said when he saw this person walk into the room, he thought to himself, oh, there's this verse, you have to rise up for, for, for someone who's old. So, so he rose up, and then the next moment, the laner, the person reading the Torah, reads that verse from the Torah, rise up for someone who's old. <laughs> now, like, it's, of all the verses in the Torah, exactly at that moment, right? So, so with that as an introduction, I heard a, a Hasidic interpretation, I don't know which Rebbe said it, but but the sort of the 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 the, the, the dir- simple direct understanding is that if someone elderly walks into the room, that you have to that you have to stand up, right? This is this is proper Torah behavior. Um, but they do a play on words where they say no, not rise up for someone elderly. Of course that's true, but there's a deeper level to it. You should rise up before you become old. So that's, that's very striking. So how do we do that? How do, how do we rise up before we become old? First we have to figure out what does it mean to become old? What is the Torah definition of old? So the Midrash says that someone, who, uh, um, someone who's old becomes, is, is like an ape, right? So that's, that's difficult to understand. It, so the Kutzka Rebbe explains it very, very beautifully. One of my all-time favorite Tars. He says that the nature of an ape is to imitate one's gestures. Like, and in fact, in English, to ape means to imitate, to copy. Um, so, so he says that a person, and this is 
I imagine never done on a conscious level, this is probably more unconscious, that a person at some point in their life kind of decides that they've, they've got it down right. They've got it. This is me. And listen to this. And they spend the rest of their lives as an imitation of themselves. That as they move forward in life, all they're doing is copying the person who they have been up until at that moment. So, so that's, that's very devastating. <laughs> that's a very devastating insight. It's a very devastating insight. So that would be, the Kutzke Rebbe is explaining, that would be the definition of becoming old. You're old once you become an imitation of yourself. So that means that according to the Torah, a young person could be old, and an old person can be young. So it has, there's no correlation between uh, one's age and being old. That the, that the, that the definition of, of staying young or not being old, however you want to formulate it, is constant growth. And the, the Chos of Lublin, one of the all-time greatest Hasidic masters, would say each day he would, he would get up and he would say, today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Which is awesome. That's, an, that's, a, that's absolutely awesome because he was a tzaddik. He was a tremendous tzaddik. But in terms of his, the way he interacted with himself, he wasn't, each, each day was looking forward it wasn't that he felt as though he had arrived and he just has to sort of like maintain whatever it was. Or he didn't think of himself as just a reflection of who he was yesterday. He had to become what he wanted to be every single day. That's his concept of today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Right? A, a righteous person, a holy person. So, so we have this mitzvah, which is the mitzvah of Orla, which I think is... Uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing mitzvah, and it's working on so many different levels. On, on the most simple level, um, it's, it's, uh, it's if you have a tree, a fruit tree, that you're not allowed to use any of the fruit the first three harvests. But the fourth harvest, like in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, and the, the, the fourth harvest you would take to Yerushalayim, and then you would eat it there. Um, today we, we, we don't have that so much, but we... we we can eat the, the fruit from the, the, the fourth harvest, right? And there are many agricultural mitzvahs which are only, um, which are only kept in uh, Israel. They only apply to Israel, but not outside the land. This mitzvah of Orla applies outside the land as well. So, for instance, I planted a lemon tree, and we did the mitzvah of Orla with this. So even in California, wherever you are in the world, this mitzvah is still intact. Um, Zachariah Goldman sort of surprised us yesterday, he stopped by and it was, he, he told me this, uh, this understanding, this was his thought, which I thought was very beautiful. He says that a person is compared to a tree. And so, so to speak, the first fruits from the tree, that, that first harvest, if you will, that would be the first expression of you as a person. Right? And that it looks like you, like right? Like it looks like a fruit, tastes like a fruit, <laughs> seems like it's a fruit. He says, but it, it's not you yet. And the second harvest and the third harvest, 
until you get to the fourth harvest, the, 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 the expression of your essence hasn't emerged into the world yet. So this is, this is a very... It's a very interesting thought because, first of all, it tells you we have to be patient, and we have to understand that that really we're we're, we're we have to look at our lives. We have a, we have a lifetime to live, basically, and that the more the more we sort of toil in this world, if you will, the more our actual essence is emerging, and. And what I, I just want to add on to that, what I think is especially striking about that, especially in this context of what, what is old, right? Because if I'm not even me yet, how could I be called old? Do you understand? Um, so, so I think it's particularly striking since we live in a society which um, has this uh, craze, is crazed uh, about youth. Right, and they they feel as though that one's um, youthly uh, embodiment is the greatest exemplar of themselves. That basically we all peak in our early twenties, right? In terms of our our beauty and our, our our essence, that this is the model version of us, and then essentially it's a long sliding downhill, <laughs> right? But, but within the context of this idea of Orla, that, that, that that's not, it's not even you yet. So you see that society, or contemporary secular society, is prizing a version where it's not even you yet. You know, and, and what's worse then, what's even worse than that, is that we, you know, there's so much plastic surgery and so much things like this, um, you know, they're of course, instances where plastic surgery is appropriate, but but the 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 craze to um, the the craze to hold on to a version of ourself that's not even the true version of us, that 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 we're not even allowed to understand that that's not even the best version of me yet, right? So so that's this is this is very important. This is this is why we have a mitzvah in the Torah like rising before someone who's who's older, because there's an expression of covet, of honor, for having gotten through life, and, and for that person having sort of, um, you know, achieved something. Like, it's, I, I, I think it's an, a, an achievement to reach, to just get through life. It's, it's actually an achievement. You know, I, I think that we really undersell, like, just what it means to, to get through life. Um, I, I'm I'm very uh, very very strong, at least in terms of my my own understanding, that that life is hard. It doesn't mean that life isn't also beautiful, and that it isn't wonderful to be alive. It's fantastic to be alive, but I think if anyone isn't approaching life from this realistic standpoint, that life itself is difficult, then I think that. I, I don't know what they're thinking, actually. I think that they're deluding themselves. Um, so, so this is this is this idea of of Orla, and I'll I'll give you another understanding, 
from the Morav Shemesh, says something very, very interesting. You see, I'm just going to kind of put it in my own words, but this is the, the thought, the, the essence of the thought is coming from him. You see, in, 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 back in the day, we were basically all farmers, okay? And when you had crops, that was your livelihood. So fruit was money. It wasn't just food. It was maybe even more than food, it was money, right? So if you can imagine like a, this isn't his imagery, it's my imagery, but you know, if you, you know, we say money doesn't grow on trees, but if you can imagine money growing on trees, <laughs> you know, like from the standpoint of you have this orchard and this is your business, I think, I, I think you would be excused to, from th- that if you looked at the tree and saw dollar bills or whatever it is hanging from the trees, that, that that would be an appropriate way to view the, the harvest. Now, can you imagine that we have a Torah mitzvah? You can't use any of that. You have money. And you're not allowed to touch the money. And you say, it's my money. I, I watered these trees. I plant this. I, I, I pruned it. I, I cared for it. It's mine. And here's this m- money. You're, maybe even fields of money. And you can't touch any of it. And you say, okay, well, you mean, you can, you mean I can't touch it today, but I can touch it tomorrow. No, 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 you can't touch it at all. Okay, this harvest I can't touch it, but next harvest I can touch it, right? No, you can't even touch it. Oh, wow, you're blowing my brains out here. But the next harvest, I mean, I'm talking about fields of money. I can touch it, right? No, 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 no. Can you imagine the how you're going to be a different person at the end of this process? You're going to go, you know, I, I remember I was with someone who was obese in my house one time. This was many, many years ago. And he came over and I had some kind of dessert item in the house. I don't know what it was. And I offered it to him and he, it was a cake or something. I don't know what it was. He, he had some of it, maybe some cookies, whatever it is. And then I remember he came back, I don't know, a few weeks later. And I offered him something. And it was from the same box. It was still fresh. It was still good. And he's like, how is this still in the house? <laughs> he, like, he couldn't understand. You've had this in the house and all this time and you haven't like devoured it? And for whatever reason, I mean, at least at that stage in my life, <laughs> I wasn't as food oriented, you know? So, I mean, it just, it wasn't even a question. Yeah, so there's a box of cookies, whatever it is. So, but can you imagine, like, but from his perspective, it was, like, remarkable. Now, imagine being in this field of money, and it's your property. But by Torah law, it's your property. And it's your trees. By Torah law, it's your trees. And it's your fruit. By Torah law, it's your fruit. And you can't touch it. So, at that point, you are going to learn how to live with a certain level of detachment from money. You, you just are. You just, you, you just are. And you're going to learn how to be happy without that being the basis of your happiness. Because you've got years, you've got years of doing this. So, so this is, 
And you're also going to understand, and now we're getting back to the more of a Shemesh now, you're going to start to ask yourself questions like, what do I need this for? What is the use of this? And you're going to realize, oh, I can use this to help other people. <laughs> In other words, part and parcel of being able to be at peace with not having it, it, it will also be a, 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 a deeper understanding of how to use it properly. So, so this is another dimension of Orla. Okay. So now I want to go deeper and return back to uh, our, our original question, um, how not to become old. Right? And again, old as defined by the Torah has nothing to do with one's age. Old means that uh, we've stopped growing. So how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we escape that? And <clears throat> I was listening to the radio uh, not so long ago, and I heard someone speaking. It was like on KCRW, you know, it was NPR, and it was, you know, it was kind of like a real kind of culture-centric kind of like person talking. And they were talking about the the way they live their life, and one of the things that they said was, you know, and I'm I'm very into lifelong learning. And I never heard that phrase before. And I thought, wow, that sounds great. Lifelong learning. And then I was like, wait, we do that? That's like that's our that's one of the tenets of it's one of the tenets of, 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 a, of a Torah life, of a Jewish life, is the the idea that you're learning your whole life, right? We're 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 opening up the Torah, we're opening up various books and, and discussions and everything like that. And we stay in learning. I mean, we're known as the people of the book, right? So this is this is this is very very essential. So so there's different types of learning, right? So as Reb Shlomo, Reb Shlomo would have two major categories that he used to refer to all the time. He would he would talk about uh, tree of knowledge type learning and tree of life type learning, right? And sort of as a companion piece to that, he would say, what's the difference between a rabbi and a rebbe? And he said one time that a rabbi teaches you something you don't know. A rebbe connects you to the deepest part within yourself. Right? So so we say, okay, we're into lifelong learning. And this is something that will stop us from becoming old. This will keep us in this, this sort of the, in the momentum of life. And, and so great. But what kind of learning? That's the question. It's not just simple learning. It's like, what kind of learning? So, so, so there's tree of knowledge learning, and there's tree of life learning. The tree of knowledge learning, you're going to gather more information but are you necessarily going to grow? Right? Maybe, you know, I, I once heard something that just fascinated me. It's possible to learn new incorrect things. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge, that's a huge idea. Because we tend to think, the more I know, the more I know. Yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, 
one-to-one -one correlation between me being more knowledgeable or wiser and me having more information. And it's, it's absolutely not the case. It's absolutely not the case. We can learn brand new falsehoods all of the time that actually take us off the course. So, so that's why it's very important, especially when you learn Torah, to make sure that you're learning Torah from really pure streams. Right? Um, it's very, very important. You know, like if, if I... If you have to learn Torah from people who have Yira Shemayim. Meaning to say that they... They're in it. They're in it. If they're not in it, don't learn from them. Doesn't mean that you can't learn from them. Meaning to say, it doesn't mean that they therefore are, have nothing to teach you at all. But you should not choose them as your teachers. Because a person has to be rooted in this recognition that, that there's a God and God runs the entire world. And, and that he gave us the Torah and everything like that. And then you're connecting in this sort of like this, this seamless entity from heaven to earth, basically. And this is one way of protecting yourself from learning new and correct things. Right? So, so anyway. So you want to learn Tree of Life Torahs. Because the Tree of Life Torahs are the things that are going to keep you growing. So I want to teach you... Um, to the best of my ability, a tree of life Torah. And, and this is now getting back to where we are in terms of the calendar, in terms of the whole Omer period, and getting ready to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. And remember, it says that God is giving us the Torah anew every single day, every single moment. So every single, whenever, whenever you're thinking about it, all year long is, is this period, okay? But especially now, in these days of the Omer. So, you see, there's this concept, let's start with this idea of a concept called yesh. Yesh is yud shin, okay? And it means it's the most sort of like um, concise, distilled way of just talking about possession. Yesh means to have, okay? So... It's kind of yeshes in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. You could say like almost like a, a distillation of materiality. So, so for a lot of people, yesh is a very good word to sum up this world. Right? Like, like there was a very loathsome uh, bumper sticker which sort of like became sort of like embarrassingly popular uh, not so long ago, which was whoever dies with the most toys wins. Like, it's so idiotic. The fact that this was like, people were like, ha, 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 wonderful. I'll put this on my car and wear it as a t-shirt. Like, I, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's so, well, anyway, you get it. It, it's a bummer, and but the but but the real bummer was that it became sort of like one of these like cultural touchstones for a while, as something that like of course like this is great, what a wonderful, pithy and witty summation of my life, you know, point of view, you know, it's crazy. Anyway, it's true. So this is Yesh. This is the idea of 
of, and I'm going to put it in, a, in, in, in the real way right now. It's this concept that if I can't see it, if I can't hold it in my hands, if I can't put it in my bank account, it doesn't exist. Right? So, so a lot of people feel like all that exists is what I can see with my eye or what can be seen with one's eye, whether it's you know, so, you know, atomic microscopes or the Hubble telescope, whatever it is, as long as it can be seen, it exists. If you can't see it, it doesn't exist. And for a lot of people, this is sort of like the parameter around our understanding of what reality is. It's as far as the eye can see is, is the definition of what is real. Okay, that's yesh. Okay? So, so very good. But you see, we, our concept is far deeper than that. And what we're doing right now is we're climbing to, to the top of Mount Sinai. That's what this calendar period is. We're leaving Egypt in Pesach, and every day we're climbing higher and higher and higher, and we're bringing down more and more light simultaneously, right? Till we get to the top of Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is awesome. And we said that Mount Sinai is the fixing for the tree of knowledge. Because, remember, one of the opinions in the Gomorrah is that the fruit from the tree of knowledge that we ate was wheat. Why? Because, like, wheat doesn't grow on trees, but the wheat then grew up, says the Medrash, huge and high, the stalks like trees. Okay? And the offering that we bring to the base of Migdash, to the Holy Temple, Anshvuas, is two loaves of bread, which is unique of all the offerings all year long. And Rav Tzadok HaKoyin, I heard in his name that, that this is a fixing from eating from the Tree of Knowledge. In other words, the receiving of the Torah is the fixing of eating from the Tree of Knowledge, because the fruit from the Tree of Knowledge was wheat, and we're bringing this offering, which is bread. Right? So, so there you go. So in other words, the concept of yesh, of materiality, that all that exists I can see with my eyes, gets fixed on, on shfus. Because on shfus we realize that there are dimensions beyond what I can see with my eyes. Remember, when Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, what happened was reality collapsed and condensed. And all of a sudden, something that was like an amazing spiritual existence, all of a sudden became collapsed into materiality. And sort of this ceiling and separation between the heart and the mind takes place, and between the concept of heaven and earth, or the unseen and the seen, takes place. There's this big turning point. Now listen to this. So we want to say, yesh is only half the story, right? What can be seen is only half the story. Now listen to this. Yesh is Gematria 310. Yud is 10 and Shin is 300, 310. Torah, the entire Torah is contained within the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments has 620 letters. 
310 plus 310. In other words, no, 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 no. The Ten Commandments in total is 610, 620 letters, I'm sorry, 620, which is 310 times 2, okay? Also, Keter, Keter, which is, we say, which means crown, we say Keter Torah, the crown of Torah, and Keter is also, just if you want to think about what can be seen, the unseen, Keter is that region which is the highest region in the heavens, Okay? Keter is also 620. So Keter Torah is, is, is this amazing thing because Keter is 620, which means the fullness of actually the map of reality, which encompasses both the seen and the unseen. And also the Torah itself, which is contained in the Ten Commandments, is also 620 letters. And the Torah lifts us above this limited understanding of the tree of eating from the tree of knowledge, where everything becomes sort of materialized and, and, and segmented. And the Torah is bringing us back to this wholeness. So the Torah is also 620, which sort of like widens our mental capacities to see the fullness of reality going up to Keter, which is also 620. So in other words, there's this beautiful thing that, that this world, so to speak, is only... The seen world is only half the story. Yesh, materiality, is 310. Torah, Keter, is 620. So, this is a tree of life, Torah. The reason is because, you know, I give a kind of a silly example, but my mind always goes back to it. You know, imagine you go to a very fine Italian restaurant, and you insist on, you know, teriyaki. <laughs> and the guy's like, this is an Italian restaurant. <laughs> we don't have teriyaki. And you're like, what kind of restaurant is this? <laughs> What's the problem? The, 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 this patron doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know where he is. And because he doesn't know where he is, his expectations are completely whacked out. You see, if you want to live a normal life, if you actually want to live the most productive life, the fullest life, the life that God wants us to live, we have to understand where we are. And so you have to live with the fullness of creation in front of you both the seen and the unseen. And to me, that's not superstitious. That's the, this is the most real way of living. Because this is where you actually are. So, So one of my teachers explained to me one time, he said, there are those people who this world is the most real, and there are other people who this world is real, and the next world is real, and there are other people where the next world is the most real. So if you can just imagine that, where this idea of the sort of the other 310, Right? You've got the yesh, which is materiality, which is this world. But then you have keter, and you have Torah, which is 620, which is 
the full expanse of it. And by the way, they're not equal because that full expanse, once you get to the spiritual realms, those spiritual realms dwarf the physical realm. So, so where are we really? And what I'm trying to get across, and now let's go deeper because this is a new thought. This is how to integrate what I'm talking about. Is to understand this not on a tree of knowledge level, like, oh, I just learned that, um, you know, a, you know, a, dodeca, a dodecagon has 12 sides. Didn't know that there even was such a thing for a 12-sided shape. Now I know there's, it's called a dodecagon, and it's got 12 sides, right? Like, if we're learning, okay, so 310 times 2 is 620, and there's this world, and there's this world, and what's for lunch? <laughs> you know, it's like... If that's how we're understanding it, then it's tree of knowledge Torah. But if I understand that where I'm standing right now, where I'm sitting right now, whatever I'm doing right now, the world doesn't end with the four walls around me, and it doesn't even end where the the the, the circumference of the planet Earth ends, and it doesn't end where the circumference of the universe ends. But it keeps on going and keeps on going, and it's above me, and it's above me, and it's above me, and somehow I still remain in this physical body amidst the infinity of all of this. And this is how I live every single day, and this is how I... Okay, now all of a sudden it's the tree of life, Torah. That wherever I go, wherever I do, I'm standing before the, the, the one, the only one. That there's this interface between materiality and, and the infinite. And that this is real and ongoing. You see, now I want to just add one more element, which is, for me, this was amazing. Let's go back to the Omer now. Let's tie this into the Omer. Okay, you ready for this? So, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Allah Shalom, says he, the, the source that was quoted was one of our most ancient holy sources. Didn't, didn't say the name, which is very cryptic. But he says, that Omer, remember what, what Omer was, what, what was Omer? We say these are the count, days of the Omer, counting of the Omer. What, what was Omer? Okay, so it was basically this idea, an ama- another amazing mitzvah, another amazing mitzvah, which is that before you harvest the new wheat crop, you would take some of it and bring it to the Beis HaMikdash as an offering. Once you sort of like kind of transacted that. It was sort of like a way of acknowledging that this new crop comes from God and thank you God for this and I'm sort of like just taking the first fruit of the wheat, if you will, and bringing it to the base of Migdash. Now the crop was permissible to you. Okay? And remember, that's you made bread out of that, so you stayed alive based on this. So your your most basic life source was from this wheat. So this was this was big. Okay. So, so Omer, so in other words, Omer really represents materiality, right? Because it's, you're bringing it from the wheat, which is what keeps you alive. Omer is gematria yesh. 
So, in other words, you're taking through the counting of the Omer and bringing your yesh. In other words, this is sort of the headquarters of materiality. Is this wheat crop? Is this is that you're going to make bread out of? You're transforming this yesh into spirituality. So that no longer is this, there's this iron barrier between heaven and earth. There's the earth, that which I can see with my eyes, that which is mine, and then there's God above. All of a sudden, the yesh, which is Gamatria Omer, the yesh gets transformed. Even materiality itself becomes transformed into godliness. And what's even more amazing is that we're doing it with wheat. Because what did we just say? The whole thing got upended because the fruit from the tree of knowledge, that thing which caused the separation to begin with, was done through wheat. And now we're ta- and then that once we ate, all of a sudden now we have yesh. Once we eat, all of a sudden we have this idea of a separation. This what I have and this is what my concept of what real is. So the, the Omer, which is Yesh, same Gamachia, is allowing me and all of us, through our counting, because that's how we're, we're observing this mitzvah, through our counting, to transform that act of eating, that act of just possession, that ra- narrow-mindedness, into expanded consciousness. And saying that it's all Torah. Because the whole process culminates with Shavuos, with the bringing of bread to the base of Migdash, which is now all of a sudden, that wheat that we ate has now become processed and elevated and sanctified and holy and is now something that's brought to the base of Migdash in the most wonderful way, in a way that was commanded. Because we were commanded not to eat from the wheat, right? And now all of a sudden we're commanded to bring the bread. In other words, it's a complete tshuva. It's a complete fixing. And we get to do it. We, the ones who ate the eat wheat, are we the ones who are now bringing the bread, and even better, we're commanded to do so. In other words, I'm not just doing it because, God, I, I want to fix it. God is allowing me to fix it, and I'm doing the mitzvah. In the way that I, I didn't do the commandment before, I am now doing the commandment now. This is, this is very, very big. This is, this is very big. See, there's a discussion between Rabbi Akiva in the Gomorrah and someone who, who's a Roman who's giving him a hard time. And the Roman basically is saying, you know what, how can you give charity? When you give charity, you go against God. And Rabbi Akiva's like, you know, what are you talking about? And he says, well, look, That guy wouldn't be poor unless God wanted him to be poor. And you were disobeying God's will by giving him money since God clearly wants him to be poor. Right? It's, I mean, there's a logic to it, but it's so perverted. So Rabbi Akiva comes back to him and he says, um, he has stalks of wheat in one hand and a loaf of bread in the other hand. And he says, which one is greater? Right? Basically, God or man, you know? And he says, well, what's greater? Well, the loaf of bread is greater than the stalks. He says, Rabbi Kiva says back to him, yeah, but 
man made the bread. <laughs> God made the wheat, but man made the bread. So, so in this way, you see that there is a role for human beings to complete creation. That the poor person is there like the stalks of wheat, but they're not just supposed to remain stalks of wheat. They're supposed to be elevated and returned and to rise up, right? So there is a role for us to transform nature, but not against God's will, because that's what God wants us to do. So now we take our experience in spiritual exile and we take that wheat, which is, which is the very thing that we defied God by eating, and we turn that yesh, that materiality, into Omer, and we bring it back to Mount Sinai, and it becomes bread, which is now brought to the Holy Temple. And the cycle is miraculously completed. So you see that the giving of the Torah aligns with the fixing from the tree of knowledge. Because Torah expands our consciousness. It gets us out of the yesh and into the Torah, the 620, out of the constricted consciousness and into the wider understanding of where we really are, what there really is. Now, I want to add something, and we'll, we'll wrap it up. You see, we've been talking about how, how you could really argue that we, we have to be... How is it that we're not counting to the number 50? Because everybody knows the, the last number that we count is 49. And yet on the 50th day is when the Torah is given, when we celebrate Shavuos. So if you think, if I'm going to count at all, I should count to the number 50. What is this whole deal that I'm only counting to the number 49? So the simple answer, as, as I understand it, is that you can't put a number on the Torah. You can't count 50 because the Torah is already infinite. And the dif difference between any of the 49 days, between 31 and 32, between 47 and 48, can't, is minuscule compared to the difference between 49 and 50. Right? That's a whole quantum level where it's going up. And what are we saying? What are we doing with the Torah? We're fixing eating from the tree of knowledge, right? So, now listen to this. You see, there's a whole field of Torah literature which um, basically compares the letters Ayin and Aleph. Ayin... Um, why are they sort of such interesting contrasts? Because they're both silent. Okay? But they represent two opposite ends of Torah philosophy. Ayin is the number 70. Interestingly, Ayin is also a word. It means the eyes. Right? See, because when we ate from the tree of knowledge, what does it, what does it say? It says that our eyes were opened... And Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver explains our eyes were open to materiality, right? And then we saw each other's nakedness, which means that our definition of understanding at that point was based on superficiality and exteriors, right? Like before we were just kind of, kind of seeing the inside of everything. Now all of a sudden our 
whole perspective and understanding got changed and we're just seeing each other's outsides. Okay? So this is the idea of ayin. Ayin is also the number 70, which represents the 70 nations, right? It's multiplicity. But there's another letter that's silent, which is Aleph. Aleph is one. Aleph is the oneness of God. Aleph is the first letter of the Ten Commandments, Anochi. Aleph is three letters combined into one, two yuds and a vav, which adds up to 26, which is the yudke vavke, right? So Aleph really stands for the oneness of God. So you have, on the one hand, two silent letters, but one stands for, like, the most exalted expression of the oneness of God. The other represents, okay, yesh, materiality itself, right? Because it's just what the eyes can see. Now, I heard in the name of the Ari. Amazing teaching. See, the way you spell eights is ayin, Ayin, this word, letter, which stands for the eyes. Ayin Sadi. Okay? That's, that's, that's eights. He says, so what we have to do is we have to change the ayin of eights into an aleph. See, it would still be pronounced eights. But what you have there is the rectification of our own perception. Because the ayin, which stands for that which you can see with your eyes, is traded out for the oneness of God. The idea that what I see with my eyes, this ayin, multiplicity, is replaced with the aleph, all I see is oneness. Okay? Now the amazing thing is, is that, so we need this Aleph. We need this Aleph. And when you spell eights with an Aleph, Aleph is one, and Sadi is ninety. That adds up to ninety-one. And as we know, ninety-one is the name Yud Kevavke and Aleph Dalad Nun and Yud, which stands for heaven and earth coming together. So when we change the Ayin of eights into a, an Aleph of eights. Now we're getting rid of this separation and heaven and earth are coming together. And I want to say that that transformation where we're adding the Aleph, this is the one from 49 to 50. <laughs> right? This is, this is where everything comes back together to our state before we eat from the tree of knowledge. When we've got this more exalted perception of godliness and we can see the largeness and the vastness of the reality that we're living in, which includes both the seen and the unseen. Now for some questions and answers. One of the comments that I was thinking of while you were speaking, one is listening to Sheriff Moshe Weinberger was discussing Rev. Label Ager. And he was saying that, especially at the beginning of the share, talking about the Kohanim, that the whole Indian of Arna Cohen, why was Arna Cohen chosen to be a Kohen? It was because he never thought 
he, he always thought his kahuna would leave in a second. He was always rotherfed. He was always chasing after that shot and chasing after, constantly getting better and never, it's never enough. So it's interesting that that's kind of how it happened. It was, I think, Parshas Korach that he was reflecting at or what Leibel Eger was teaching on. And the second thing is, um, some friends yesterday were discussing, I think is maybe something he said in Shul about the 620, but if you also take 613 mitzvahs and then you add the seven mitzvahs, it's 620 as well. Yeah. And yeah, also, the, or the seven mitzvahs, they're abundant. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And um, so a friend of mine was saying also there's yesh in this world, but there's shai, sharim in, in, um, in heaven, where the tzaddikim live. So if you take the yesh of this world and the the shed the three hundred ten of the next world and combine them together, that's six twenty as well. Right, right, excellent. Yeah, because it says that the, and again, this is all Torah code, so you have to understand it in that context. The the Gemara says that the tzaddikim were given three hundred and ten worlds, which again is is this expansion, but very much in line of what we're talking about now. The idea of this. The other side of reality, if you will, or the or the or the fullness of reality, the yesh in this world, and but it, it continues, but it blossoms like extraordinarily. Yeah. I was fascinated, fascinated by ape, the whole concept yes. of ape and the yes. imitating. Um, I'm sure I'm almost sure you've heard this, but like Sarah Riegler speaks about, uh, and she was talking about how the word halacha. The root word is cholech, which is a Jew's always moving. And um, I just wanted to get clarity. On the one hand, you said, you know, when somebody gets, you know, when somebody gets older, or they're, they're, they they've reached old age when when they they they're like like an ape, which means that they're imitating themselves, which means that they've stopped growing, uh, which is not a good thing. Uh, you know, at first when you were saying it, I was thinking of it in like in a coveted way, like, oh, you know, they're imitating, but then that's not good. No, know? it's a negative. You don't want to. Right. right you so, so, so I heard Reb, Reb Shlomo say one time in the name of the Yishvitzer Rebbe, which is the highest, basically the highest Torah is a person to ask themselves each moment of their life, what does God want from me this instance? At this instant, what does God want from me right now? And um, that type of uh, living allows you to be in the moment and to do what's demanded at this particular situation, which will very well not be what you would have done on automatic pilot. In other words, you, you may not have reached out to another person because you would have gone, you know what? That's not the type of thing that I do. So that would be the, the classic example of imitating yourself in the present, right? Or pulling your past self into the future, right? But if you have the perspective of what does God want from me this moment, then all of a sudden you are free to do the type of things that are outside of the normal things that you normally would do, which is, you know, in the most positive context, assuming that you're doing the right things, the, the definition of growth, that is, that is growth in action. That is sort of like a snapshot of growth. Just going back to a comment you made at the, near the beginning, I just want a little clarification. Yeah, sure. And uh, 
uh, thought on it. Uh, you mentioned how life is really hard, you know? Yes. And I'm definitely not going to, you know, disagree with that. For sure, life is right. very, very hard. Right. But from my understanding, I thought, according to Rabbi Nachman, there's like this idea of like living in Simcha and being yes. in Simcha. Right. And to be constantly, you know, singing and just like much of your talk is kind of like having an awareness of perception of Hashem yeah. at all times. Right. right. So, is it more of a Jewish philosophy that it's not life isn't hard, life is beyond hard or simple. It's like you're just, you're cleaving to Hashem, you're moving forward, right. feeling, God willing, like in Simcha elevated, yes. that Simcha also creates more growth and, op and more opportunities <laughs> open up. And like, to even say life is hard in a way, like it limits our perception of, of, what, uh, of what we're meant to be doing in a way from moment to moment. Yeah, so, so I'm glad you're saying that because I, I would agree with that. Absolutely everything that you said, a thousand percent. But there, I think that there has to be alongside of that a recognition that we, we have a Yetzirah mm. and we have a physical body and we have challenges that are sent our way and that that is part of the picture. Like, for instance, one of the sort of like a world-changing Torah for me that I learned from Rabbi Orlovsky. Uh, he put it into the following perspective. He said, when, when Avraham Avinu was told Lech Lecha, right, go, go, to, go to Israel. So Avraham, you know, picks up his entire community, this amazing community that he made, and he goes with Sarah, and they go on this journey, and God doesn't even tell them where they're going. He's, God says, go to the land that I will show you which was an extra level of test and challenge because, um, you know, you know, like he didn't know where he's going, you know? So that just makes, it just puts in this element of insecurity in the whole thing. So you really have to trust and everything like this. Anyway, and Abraham does it. And, you know, he does it perfectly, basically. And he gets to the land and now, if I'm writing the story, I say, and then there are fruit trees, <laughs> and there's, you know, you know, just wonderful neighbors, <laughs> and just, it's great, because God told them to do it. And what do we find? There's a famine in the land. And it's not like God got confused and brought him to the, oh, I meant to bring him to the place with food. No, God brings him to the place without food. And what happens with his wife? She gets kidnapped. And what, what's with the neighbors? They're like wars. So, so, so you, you think, oh, okay, well, wait a second. That just, it simply doesn't make any sense. It must be Avraham did something wrong. But no, God forbid, Avraham didn't do anything wrong. Then you go, okay, well, wait a second. How am I to understand this anyway? Because this seems to be, Avraham is all of us, right? Avraham is the prototypical Jew. All the Avos are. It says that their entire life, that's why we study their lives so closely, because, because the idea is that Maisim Avos Simen Lebanim, that's the, that's the, the, uh, that means that everything they went through, we're going to go through. That, that's, that their lives is a microcosm for all of our lives till the, till the end of time. So it must mean, therefore, that even if you live life perfectly, Challenges will be sent your way. Because that is part of life. Mm -hmm. Because that is part of this entire epic enterprise that all of us are involved in since the beginning of time. And why is it taking so long? 
because the enterprise is so epic. It's completely cosmic and epic. That's why it's taking this long. It's, it's a giant. It's beyond giant. So, so there has to be that recognition as well. So, so I heard Reb Shlomo say, and I think about this all the time, I think it's a very powerful teaching, a person doesn't need a reason to be happy. That's very important because a lot of times, like people, I don't, I don't know about your internal dialogues, but a lot of people kind of wake up and they're not in a good mood, they're not in a bad mood. Or maybe they're in a bad mood. But let's just say they're not in a good mood and they're not in a bad mood. And they think to themselves, why should I be happy? Give me a reason to be happy. But he's saying a person doesn't need a reason to be happy. <laughs> You don't have to convince yourself to be happy every day. That should be, you, you should feel entitled to that as a starting point. And entitled, I know, is a very, very tricky word because we're not entitled to anything, basically. But, um, but a person doesn't need a reason to be happy. Another thing is, you know, during a difficult period in my life, I was thinking of the words that you quoted, which is, it's from the Tehillim, from David Melech. It says, Yivdu es Hashem besimcha, serve God in joy. But Yivdu means labor. It means work. And I remember thinking to myself one time, Yivdu, it's hard work to serve God in joy. <laughs> in other words, it's not, it doesn't always come easily. Sometimes it takes real avoda, real hard work, to get yourself to a place of serving God with joy. So, so, so one of the baseline realities about being in this world is that God will throw challenges at you and does on a regular basis. And a person has to accept that as a baseline reality because all of contemporary society is telling you that this is like, you're on like a 80-year booze cruise. And if you're not, you know, at the bar or on the dance floor or swimming or tanning, there's something wrong with you. And this is what I mean when I say that it's possible to learn new incorrect things. I, I believe that that premise is, is very toxic and is also actually a thousand percent incorrect. And if a person understands that, 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 this, that the baseline assumption is that this life is a life of work, however, you don't need a reason to be happy. And there's extraordinary beauty absolutely everywhere. Then all of a sudden you've got, a, I, I think, a realistic, sophisticated understanding of, what, of what's before us. Um... I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I saw this article. It was, I think, in, it was just in the Wall Street Journal. One, uh, Senator Sasso, something like that. I think I'm mispronouncing his name. But anyway, he was talking about bringing up kids. And he was giving sort of advice for, the, the, the article was um, called Perpetual Adolescence. And he was saying that, uh, that it's becoming increasingly hard for people today to become adults. And, and that there's even a, a new word that apparently in 2015 it was like nominated as, you know, as a finalist for best new word, right? Which was a, a verb called adulting. And, and someone had like tweeted like, you know, something like, um, 
not watching eight hour, my eighth, I'm paraphrasing, but not watching my eighth hour of Netflix, going to do my laundry instead. Hashtag adulting. <laughs> right? So, so he was like, how do we escape this and actually get out of this perpetual adolescence and become adults? Right? And he gave different pieces of advice. The first bit was something that I've discussed in these talks, which I did very actively with my kids, and I'm, uh, I was sort of like surprised to see him write about it, you know? Made me want to run for the U.S. Senate for, <laughs> for a nanosecond. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, which was the difference between want and need. People say all the time, I need that. And I would stop my kids dozens of times, no, you need oxygen to live. You want that, you don't need that. Right? It's, it's a very important distinction, and, and if you find yourself using the word need for anything that is actually not a need, stop yourself. Because what you're doing is you're basically brainwashing yourself into thinking that you that luxuries are playing a role in your life that, that, that is simply one's own being spoiled. I mean, just to put it simply, you know? Um, there's another point that you brought up. Yeah. And actually, this is the reason why I brought the whole thing up to begin with, is that that people have to be uh, more acclimated, more familiar with doing hard work, things that they don't want to do. Mm. And, yeah. And, you know, that, that seems to be like the real, that seems to be the real kind of line. Uh, with ad with adulting is actually rolling up your sleeves and I know I heard from Rav Noach something very very interesting uh, Shalom. he said that you talked about it I think he called it the five minute rule which is when you're ready to quit whatever it is when you're ready to quit say I'm going to give it five more minutes and I've done that with myself and I'll tell you like a lot of times that's made the difference it's absolutely made the difference. Because if you say five more minutes, you know that that's not three hours, it's not till the task is done necessarily. But sometimes that five minutes opens up gates for you, where you're actually allowed to, where you find yourself doing a lot more than you realize that you possibly could. And sometimes even within those five minutes, by the way. So that's, that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's something, you know. Um, okay. From the beginning, from when you started speaking many years ago, because for me, I you know I know my own struggles, but to hear somebody that you know when you look up at people and they're teaching you Torah, you imagine that their life is just flowing, and you actually want it to be that way. You want your life to flow because you want to have this ideal vision of like an ideal life. But when you're honest and you're saying. No, life is hard. There are challenges. <laughs> Learn Torah, but there are challenges. It's like, okay, this is life. Except that there's no ideal out there. The Torah and the 
the whatever we need to break through and go through, that's right here, right now. It's not some ideal to get to. Yeah, well, I I appreciate your your saying that. I I just you know we got to be real, right? Yes. We got to be real with each other, and if if Torah study isn't real, then then what's the point, you know? So, so I'll tell you something, and it's a story that, another, you know, life-changing story, and I heard it from Reb Shlomo, and he used to tell this story quite a bit, because this was a very, very important story to him. And he was, I don't know how old, but he was young at the time, and he was, um, he was with his father, and his father was, um, you know, a German rabbi, and of course Reb Shlomo was a line, from a, a line of rabbis for hundreds of years, and his father, his father did a family tree, um, and his father traced the, his um, lineage to David Amelech, King David, on 18 different sides of the family, right? So there was a, a sense of malchus, of royalty to, the, to, to this family, to the Karlbach line. And um, his father was a German rabbi, and he, he, he saw that someone came into the house, and this person was known as a, uh, basically as a thief, just a, just a disreputable person. And he sees that his father, he goes into the other room to tell, to tell his father that this person is there, and he sees his father straightening his beard and straightening out his clothes and really making sure that he, that he looked as, as, as proper as, as he could. And Rip Shlomo says, as, as a young person, that he said to his father, why are you taking the pains to sort of like, you know, you know, make sure that you look so proper before meeting this guy? You know who this guy is, right? And these were the words of his father. He said, Shlomo, there isn't enough covet in the entire world for one person to give another. Covet, of course, means honor. There isn't enough covet in the entire world for one person to give another. So why? Why? Because everyone is going through something. And, you know, Dennis Prager quotes his friend's mom, who said, if you know someone who doesn't have any problems, this is proof that you don't know them very well. So, you have to understand, just... As a baseline assumption, everyone is going through something. And that means that everyone is encountering some aspect of difficulty. And you're a fool if you say, I wish I had those problems. That, th those are the words of a fool. Those are the words of a fool. Because they don't understand that for that other person, it's a genuine difficulty and source of hardship. So it's 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 it, it's idiocy to say I wish I had those problems, and I'm telling you as someone who works in surrounded, not in the same room, but nonetheless working with celebrities on a regular basis, I can tell you that the life of a celebrity is a difficult life, and these are the this this is the primary focus of people who say I wish I had those problems. That's idiocy. It's actually idiocy. Uh, <clears throat> as for your last statement, yes it is. Um, <laughs> um, going back to what you were saying about 
giving the stalks of wheat to the poor person? Or the bread. The bread. Or the bread, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and I wrestle with this every time I encounter someone. Yeah. And um, in some when do you know when you are actually helping them elevate from their poverty and when you're just reinforcing it and throwing money at the problem? I mean, and I'm not talking about cases where someone absolutely right. is too impaired to right. do anything about right. it. Right. So are you just talking about, I mean, like a, a person on the street right now? Or are you talking about another category? Uh, let's start with a person on the street. So a person on the street, I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, I, I heard someone say one time, and it, 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 it struck me, which is that, um, first of all, the Gomorrah says you can't walk by a poor person. Mm -hmm. so, so the minimum level of tzedakah is actually to smile at them. And that is still counted as tzedakah. And you can also say something nice to them, even if for whatever reason you don't have something in your pocket, which is sometimes the case. Um, you can say, hey, have a great day, or, you know, just, you know, nice to see you. I'm very sorry I don't have anything. Just, just to acknowledge them is in itself a form of tzedakah, and it's actually counted as tzedakah. Um, so, so, so one should know that, that everyone is entitled to that, whether they receive anything monetarily from you or not. In terms of um, the, the monetary level, uh, you know, it, it's, if you can give them something, it, it's good to give them something. And, and more likely than not, the, the quarter or the dime or the dollar, whatever it is, is, is not going to really make that much of a difference. And they might use it for food. Other people walk around with packets of food, like a candy bar or whatever it is, and, and, or nuts or something like that, and, or a bottle of water, whatever it is, and, or a banana. You know, and o oftentimes they're, they're very, very happy to get that. So that's a way of un sort of like um, taking away the obstacle if, they, um, if, they're, if, if they're tempted to use that for liquor or something like that. You know, you're actually giving them food. And, you know, you can get a bunch of bananas, put it in your car, and you, you, you've got it, you know? Socks or you can go through your closet. Good. Say it again? Socks are very... Socks? Are very wow, that's awesome. I never even thought of that. That's mm -hmm. fantastic. Probably all of us have socks that we don't wear in our drawer. You know? You know, that, that's awesome. Um, yeah, there's... there's a, the Old shoes. We probably have old shoes that in our closet that we don't wear anymore. That, that can be awesome, just to have those in your trunk, you know? So there are all sorts of ways that where you can give material help without feeling as though you're aiding and abetting. But at the very least, there's um, a moment of humanity and compassion that we're transacting every time we walk by someone like that. And the minimum is to smile or to say something, just to acknowledge the fact that they're in this world. And then you asked yeah. about, you, you said, which am I talking about? Yeah. Just, and so then yeah. going beyond that. Yeah. So then that's, that's more of a case-by-case case then. That gets more complicated. That we can't give a general thing to. You have to, you have to know the details on that. One sentence. Can you give us like a working definition of uh, synchrony? Like, or synchronicity? Synchronicity. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of the... Right. It, you often share okay. stories where it's like, you feel like, if like a sham is like... Right. Yeah. So, Synchronicity, so, right, 
So I wrote an article on it. It's on the website. Um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I think it's called The Meaning of Coincidence. Mm. Right. And it's a written piece. It's not a, a, a talk. Right. So on the website, TorahOnitunes.com, there's a little um, button that you can press for articles. Mm. And um, there, there's some nice articles there. I'm biased, but <laughs> um, but there, for some people it's it's for some people it's easier to read stuff than write stuff. I've been bad about writing stuff, but there are some things that are written. But I would say um, the idea is that when something a so-called coincidence happens to you, that this is um, this is God revealing His presence in the moment, and that it's a time of favor. It's a time of divine favor because God, nothing's hard for God, but so to speak, God is going out of his way to show you his presence. And as such, since God is making a point of showing you his presence, that means it must be a time of love, which means pray. In other words, if anything that like a coincidence happens to you, that means, as I understand it, the gates are open at that moment and you should pray. And of course, everyone should know, right, that, that there's five categories, just, and you can add to it, but five basic categories that you should always, whenever you feel the gates are open, that you should be doing. One is, you should pray for people who need a wife or a husband, right? You should pray for people who need a job. You should pray for people who need health. You should pray for people who need kids. And you should pray for Mashiach. Right? So that's, you should have a list in every single one of those categories that you can just rattle off when you feel that the gates are open. Right? And then after that, after that, after you do that, you should, um, you should remember to pray for yourself. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you a story. I heard it from Reb Shlomo. I don't remember the name of the Rebbe. But there was a Rebbe who was learning, and it was in the middle of the night. And he really sensed that all the gates were open. And he tells his Gabai, his, his assistant, he says, Go fast, go wake everybody up. Tell them to come right now, whatever they want right now. All the gates are open, all their prayers can be answered right now. And and no one came. And the next day, the Rebbe said to the Gabbai, what happened? He said, Rebbe, I tried. I banged on everyone's doors and windows. No one came. And he said, but you didn't come. So to remember, also pray for yourself. Mm. There's, you know? a there's a famous yeah. story in Chabad, like the Rebbe's third for Brenya. There were like 25, 30 people there. And no one had any money or anything. And the Rebbe said, who here wants to be very, very rich and a millionaire? And three guys raised their hand, and they all became super rich millionaires. Well, I mean, we know who they are, a guy named Paul Packers, yeah. half the apartments in Brooklyn, huh. a guy named Citroen, was a shofet, he went to Brazil and started trading pearls, became a giant. I forget who the third one was. <laughs> it's a very yeah. famous story. Do you yeah. witness that? Yeah. The, the Rebbe that when he wake up, would wake up in the morning, he would hope that he's going to be righteous that day, that every day yeah. he would the, the cause of Lublin. He said, today I'm going to be a tzaddik. Yeah. 
it's a very good like um, self-evaluation is to see like what do we wake up for like each person like what's your best day like I'm sure some people will be like how much money I'm gonna make today or whatever it is that that ambition of like today it's just gonna be like this amazing day of I'll be able to express it. Oh, whatever it is so for him that he wanted to be righteous that was right. his yeah. goal like right. that would be an yes. amazing day for him that he's gonna right. be righteous yes yeah, 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 absolutely. Just now when you put wife or partner yeah. and kids in the need category, having just explained the difference between a need and a want, is that an innate need for from everyone? I mean... Well, it says it's not good for people to be alone, you know? Well, sure. So, you know, that's a Torah idea. But it's not necessarily yeah. good for them to be with someone that's sucking their soul. No, no, no. In fact, one of the one of the six hundred and thirteen commandments is divorce. Right. So it's actually, and why why is that one of the mitzvahs? For the purpose of shalom bias. Shalom bias, which is surprising because shalom bias is usually used in the context of husband and wife getting along together, and the shechina being present, you know, in that in that in that dynamic. But if, for whatever reason, the, the husband and wife aren't getting along, for the sake of shalom bias, for the sake of peace in the home, it's better for them to be apart. So in other words, it's a yeah. paradox, just like a lot of our stuff. No, not a paradox. This is easily understood. In other words, in other words it's ideally speaking, it's, it's, it's best if we can have this level of companionship because we're, there's an element of loneliness which is kind of relieved in this way. But at the same time, though, but not at the expense where it's just causing constant fights. Not at that price. Right. Right.